I am Angus Kebble, and welcome to Factor Magri, the Viticulture Series. Working with New Zealand wine growers, this weekly show delves into New Zealand's grape growing regions and industry. We will be looking at sustainability and the different varieties that are making waves in our international markets, with a focus on the people and characters that bring your favourite bottle to life. New Zealand's wine industry is young by global standards, but it has quickly become a respected wine producing nation. New Zealand's wine regions are typically found, with some exceptions, on the east coast of both the North and South Islands, and each region and sub-region contain their own unique soil and climatic conditions. Due to mountain ranges that run through the centre of both islands of New Zealand, the east coast is typically dry, as these ranges block our predominant weather which flows from the northwest to southwest directions. With irrigation, water application can be managed which gives the wine grower certain controls over the performance of the grapevines and ultimately the concentration of the fruit. New Zealand is home to the world's most southerly vineyards and they benefit from the moderating effect of our maritime climate and long sunshine hours and cool nights that provide perfect environments for grapes to thrive. Over the next two episodes, I'm taking a look at Hawke's Bay and its diverse and varied landscape. Hawke's Bay on the eastern side of the Ruahine mountain range in New Zealand's North Island is well known for its full-bodied reds and rich complex Chardonnay. In this episode, I'm talking with Timata Estate viticulturalist Larry Morgan to get his thoughts on sustainability and delve into various aspects of his role at Timata Estate and its varieties grown and some of the processes of this iconic Hawke's Bay wine producer. Let's check in with Larry. Hello Larry, thank you for talking with me today. That's fine Angus, nice to, uh, nice to talk to you too. Larry, please can you tell me about the work that you do? Okay, Angus, I'm uh, a viticulturist at Tomato Estate. I've been here for just over 25 years now and, and that's a, it's a very wide ranging role. It basically encompasses everything from getting the vines into the ground, uh, looking after any new plantings or replanting um, and taking the, the grapevine right through to, the, to harvest and, and getting fruit, fruit to the winemaker in, in as good a condition as possible. So it's and everything in between. So, yeah, a very, yeah. very wide ranging role. Tomato Estate is New Zealand's oldest winery and the winery and original vineyards were the first to be heritage protected. Please, can you tell me a bit about the history? Yep, we're, we're certainly regarded as... as one of the oldest, if not the oldest, winery in, in Hawke's Bay, and, and, and we believe we have the oldest vineyards. We've got uh, grapes growing on, on our, our vineyard. We call it 1892, and we know that there were grapes planted on that block in 1892. So it's been continuously planted and grown in grapes uh, for what, something like 130 years now. And um, as a result of that, it's probably one of the vineyards in New Zealand which has, um, produces really good grapes because of the fact that it's been growing them for so long. And, and what it's done is it's actually taken a lot of the, the nutrients out of the soil over that period of time. And uh, it's, a, it's a very, what we would call a low vigor vineyard. So there's not a lot of growth in the vines, but the, what the vines are doing is putting all their energy into producing top quality fruit. So um, the advantage of those those not so much the old vines, but the old soils, the soils that have had vines in for a long time, uh, comes through. And so that is the area where those, uh, that vine vineyard is, is um, protected by the um, Hastings District Council, what they call the Timata Special Character Zone. 
And so that, that is it's uh, zoned off and, and is just is protected for in perpetuity for no extra development can come in there. It's, it's just for grape, not just grape growing, but, but growing of any kind. But, but, you know, we're growing grapes there and we've got other agriculture and horticultural industries in that zone and it's protected for that, hopefully forevermore. Can you tell me a bit about that vineyard, where it is, and of course other vineyard locations that you have and what is produced on each vineyard? Mm. Yeah, we've got a, a range of locations, really three different areas in Hawke's Bay. So we're growing on where, where our winery is situated, what we call the Havelock Hills. So we're just on the on the lower slopes of Timata Peak. And um, we also have vineyards in the Bridge Park area, a couple of newer blocks for us on the, what we call the Gimlet Gravels, which is, is the very gravelly soils. And then another a big vineyard out to the west side, um, the Dartmoor Valley, which is up the Tutaikuri River. Um, so on the banks of the of the Tutaikuri River, uh, we've got a, a large 85 hectare vineyard there. So three different zones, three slightly different uh, soil types, but certainly three three slightly different climatic zones as well. But you're yeah, going back to that original 1892 vineyard on the slopes of Timata Peak. Older soils were pretty much limestone derived. Uh, anyone that's been up to the top of Timata Peak will see the the limestone there and see the, the seashells in it so it's, it's got the limestone base um, fairly high clay content and some interesting challenges in terms of the soil make up a lot of uh, what we call a, a hard clay pan coming or silica pan underneath those vines and so it, it does give a, a restricted root, rooting depth uh, which again contributes to the to, the low vigour of the block, so that's one of the, the key aspects of that block, is that it's, um, it, it just doesn't grow, the vines don't grow too strongly, and they put their energy into the, the quality of the fruit. So, yeah, important to us to have vineyards in a range of locations. It, 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 it mitigates, gets risk. Um, there's always a risk of hail, frost, um, other climatic things, and so having the vines spread around just means that, uh, you know, we've got, say, for example, we've got... Our main variety Chardonnay we grow in each of the three areas, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot uh, in those three areas, uh, Sauvignon Blanc as well. So yeah, that, that's part of the, the key for us to, is to spreading the risk, but also for the winemakers being able to get the effects of the, the fruit from the different areas and they're all subtly different. They'll be, um, yeah, ju just from the, the fact that they grow in different soil types under slightly different climate. Uh, that fruit will be subtly different and the winemakers have great benefit from that. I understand Tomata was one of the first to adopt the Sustainable Wine Growing New Zealand program. Why did the company do this? Um, a number of reasons. We were, yeah, we're quite proud that we were one of the first five wineries that set up uh, under the Sustainable Wine Growing Scheme. That was, I'm pretty sure it was 1995. Uh, wine growers were just coming out. Um, Dr. David Jordan, who had been... Uh, contracted to New Zealand wine growers to, to set up this or help set up the scheme. Uh, he researched uh, a number of schemes uh, around the world. Um, and I'd, I guess I had the advantage of working with Dave, um, my previous role with um, Port Research. Uh, Dave was my, my boss there for a while. So I knew him well. And when it came about that they were setting up the scheme, um, yeah, just partly through our personal contact, but also partly because Timata saw an opportunity to, to be in right on the ground floor on a, a scheme that we thought had great benefit in terms of uh, the whole industry. Just um, a really a, a scheme that would really reinforce what 
that we're doing the right thing um, and, and give guidelines to growers in terms of uh, that whole sustainable uh, wine growing approach here. So as I say, from, from 95, we've been in all the way through to what it's evolved to uh, today. Clearly, sustainability is a big part of Timata. What is your approach to things like water usage pest and disease control? We're making use of technology um, more and more. Um, for example, for our irrigation strategies, we're looking at what's happening in the soil. So we've got soil moisture probes that we have, um, the capacitance probes down into the soil on a number of sites. So I think we've got 13 of these probes over all, all our company vineyards. So this is a, a probe, it goes down to about a metre in the soil and it's the data is streamed into a cloud-based platform and so at any time we can look either on our PC or on our mobile phone and we can quickly determine what the, the soil, the moisture level is in the soil at those sites. And that we pick representative sites. So these devices, they're, they're not cheap. You're, you're looking at something like perhaps three and a half thousand dollars for a, for a setup for one, one unit. So, but once you get in there, if it's in a representative area of the vineyard, then you can say to yourself, well, this is what it's doing here. And so I think, I'm, I'm confident that this is what's happening over the you know the 10 hectares or, or 15 hectares surrounding this probe so we're using that to look at what's happening in the soil um, we've just in the last uh, season gone by 2019 we've purchased our own pressure chamber so that we could get out and measure the uh, water status of vines and we, we do this by looking at something we call a stem water potential um, it's a technique that's been around for many, many years. It's, it's been used in all sorts of fruit crops, but, but basically you're, you're taking a leaf off the vine, um, you're popping the leaf into the pressure chamber, you're applying pressure to the leaf and you're determining how much pressure it takes to, to force moisture out of that leaf. And so you're looking, you take the petiole, the petiole is the, the little bit sticking out of the, the end of the chamber. Uh, you look at that through a little magnifying lens and, and as soon as you see moisture popping out the end, uh, that that's your finish point and so what that tells us is, is the moisture it gives us a good idea of the moisture status of the vine and so we're able to go around again like the soil um, moisture sampling or, or a measuring we we use representative blocks so you don't do every vine but you might do a three vine sample over a, over a five hectare block for example something or a three hectare block and that gives you an idea um, and but then within that block, you might be looking at an area where the vines are, are growing quite strongly, and then you might come to another area where the vines are, are under stress, and you'll take readings from both of those blocks, and then maybe something in the in the middle, and and so that's the kind of thing you might be doing uh, once or twice a week, and you get a very quickly you get a picture of of what's happening. So if you look at that information combined with what's what you're finding out what's going in the soil, then we use that to determine how much water we need to put on the vines. It sounds complicated, but it's really, it's looking at what's happening in the soil, what's happening in the vine, looking at the weather, getting the latest weather forecast and combining all of that. And, and at the same time, we've already got a, an idea of how much water we think the vine needs. We've uh, had a figure in mind for a long time, four, four litres a day per vine is, is about what a grapevine needs to produce, keep it healthy and produce good fruit. But Using these tools means we can tweak that to individual circumstances. And so some blocks, they might only be using two and a half to three litres. Other blocks on some varieties, they might need five or six litres. But it's, it's around about that, that point. So you're making use of technology. Pest mm. disease control, another aspect of where we're using the, the very much greater accuracy of the weather reports or weather forecasts that we're getting. 
combining that with pest and disease monitoring. So as part of our, our weather monitoring systems, we've got um, uh, powdery mildew indicators, for example, which will um, indicate when we might have had an infection period for powdery mildew. So we can make sure we've got those cover sprays on um, either, either before the infection period or certainly soon, soon after. Um, again, for botrytis, we've got monitoring programs. So yeah, some of the programs, are, are it's easiest to do a basic preventative program, but others, it's much more targeted. And so we only put the chemical on only if it's needed. And so if it's not needed, we don't use it. So yeah, all part of the sustainable approach where you're really only just doing something if you need to do it rather than just doing it um, just in case kind of thing. Technology yeah. clearly is an important component is there a limit on improvements technology can provide? Oh, I don't think so. Um, yeah, we were, um, a colleague and I, we were lucky enough to get to about this time last year, there was, was the Australian Wine Industry Technical Conference in Adelaide and, and just some of the new technology coming through there uh, for vineyards and wineries, it was just mind boggling, the kind of thing. Use of drones, for example, for, for monitoring your vines, use of um, satellite imagery for looking at blocks and, and looking, being able to determine where you've got high vigour and low vigour areas. And, and while that, that kind of thing has been around for, I guess, for quite a while, it's, it's, it's now becoming much more cost effective and it's the kind of thing that, that growers are, are very much um, more using it as, as a matter of course. Um, the use of robotics, for example, in vineyards, you know, just seeing some of the things that can be done with um, autonomous vehicles and, and grapevines and, and vineyards in particular are well suited to that kind of machinery we've got long straight rows we've got um you know you can imagine if you you've got a, a an autonomous tractor with a mower on it, it it could use gps to get itself into the row but once it's in the row it can use sensors it can see the row either side and it can easily use sensors to, to drive itself straight down the middle of the row and that kind of thing which was possibly a bit of a dream a few years ago is now becoming um very very much not, not i wouldn't say commonplace but it's becoming affordable mm. and and so that there are definitely vineyards out there looking at this equipment, not not just in New, uh, around the world, but within New Zealand. So yeah, yeah. It, it, much more over the next few years, it's just going to be um, much more commonplace. In your vineyards, is yield an important factor, or is the emphasis more on quality? Yeah, it de depends on the, very much on the end use of the product. Um, if it, if for, for a high quality, high end fruit, whether it's red or white, then then uh, quality definitely wins out over quantity every time but if it's a a, a lower end wine and um, perhaps you're not so much focusing on the, the ultimate quality um, you still need to to get a certain quantity to to pay the bills so um, mm. you, you'll still uh, need a certain amount of grapes to come off those vines um, but you yeah, always got a mind to that that balance between uh, how much you're carrying how much fruit you're carrying and what the ultimate um, end use is, is of those grapes yeah that, that's really what determines uh, what what we let the vines carry. And just on quality, Coleraine Cabernet is arguably Tomato's most famous wine. Perhaps it's New Zealand's most famous wine. Please can you tell me a bit about how this is made and the blend that is used? The Coleraine is, um, it's, it's always been a blend of three varieties. The, the three, uh, I guess, the, the most common varieties in Bordeaux. Um, so it's Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot's the next most dominant, and then a little bit of Cabernet Franc. And so that proportion varies um, every year depending on mm the quality of the grapes that the winemakers get. But um, 
every year it's, it's made up of, of the blend of those three varieties. And so it, it starts in the vineyard and we have, we have blocks that, that have been designated to go into Coleraine uh, over many, many years. And so we've, we've got the experience of the blocks, we know where they are, and it might only be part of a block. So say a Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, part of the vineyard sits on, on the flat. The, the north part of it is on the, on the, on the flat and the south part, it goes up onto a slope. And um, virtually year in, year out, the, the part on the slope would make the Coleraine, make the grade for Coleraine because it, it, it's north facing, it's um, angled to the sun, it's just that little bit hotter. The part of the vineyard on the flat, sometimes it makes it into Coleraine, sometimes it, it just makes it into the second one, into Awatere. So, so we identify early on, very early on, that those are the blocks that will be designated for Coleraine and they're the ones that get the all everything we can do to to make sure that fruit gets in. So they get pruned um, to to the right degree so that they don't carry too much crop. Once the shoots grow, the shoot thinning is done super carefully. Um, it's the the fruit thinning is done to to establish just a, a, a very um, moderate low to moderate crop. As the fruit are ripening, we'll, we've been known to go through, and as the fruit ripens, sometimes you can get a bit of mixed ripening in the bunch we might be going through picking out green berries out of those bunches as they're ripening just to make sure that when it finally gets into the winery, it's as uniform as possible. The ripeness is uniform. Every single berry is, is at the, the, um, the optimum ripeness. And so we'll have blocks for those three varieties, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, primarily from the Havelock Hills, but also out on the, the Bridge Power Triangle, we've got blocks out there that, that have been identified over the last 20 to 30 years that we know will produce fruit of the quality that we need to go into Coleraine. And um, I guess from what I say, it's 20 to 30 years, those vines, they obviously they get older every year and, and there's an old adage in the wine industry that, that old vines produce the best wine. And, and certainly that's part of the, the success of the Coleraine label is that we've got vineyards now that are, are of an age that they, they're very consistent they don't produce a lot of fruit, but year in, year out, the, the quality of the fruit coming off them. So yeah, my job is to get that fruit to the winery and then it's up to the winemakers to do the best they can. And they've got a number of uh, techniques they'll do, the, the, the barrel program they use, the, uh, what they do with the fruit, pre-fermentation, the sorting, we have sorting tables that the fruit goes over so they can give the final pick through and make sure there's nothing in there that shouldn't be. And then the, the various techniques they'll use right through the blending process, the aging of the wine, and then uh, yeah, through to, to so it's ready for the final final sale. So yeah, it, it's uh, the top labels. They get all the work. They get everything that we, we throw everything at it to, to basically get the very best out of it we can. I'd imagine Coleraine is all handpicked, but for all your other grapes, are they handpicked, or does that depend very much on variety, quality, and location? For example. Yeah, yeah. Again, probably more on, on the end use of those grapes, mm. Angus. So it would be if it's if it's destined for a, a high. High-end wine, uh, Coleraine, Awatere, Bullnose, Elston Chardonnay, uh, yeah, that, they're all hand-picked for sure. If it's for a wine, perhaps if you think of our estate range, so we have Merlot Cabernet or Cabernet Merlot, depending on the season, Sauvignon Chardonnay, yeah, they, they're all machine harvested. I mean, mm. The machines that do it are very, very good these days. They, they do a great job. You know, some, some companies will we use machine harvesting for everything and they, they get a very good result from it. It's partly the tradition, it's partly for us, it's that final, final check we can do. Our pickers that come and work for us, they've worked us for an, a number of years and so we use them as our, our last 
virtually a last line of quality control. So that they're handpicking that fruit, they're checking each bunch as they pick it, they make sure it's virtually perfect before it goes into the bin. Um, so it just gives us that, that little, we think that little edge in terms of the yeah, that last line of, of defense in terms of the, the quality control. But yeah, so so again, end, end use is, is the final mm. determinant. Very much, um, handpicking is very expensive. So you, you it's been very difficult to justify it for a, a 15 or $20 wine. You, very hard to justify hand pick for that, but, but certainly it, it fits in well for the higher end wines. Larry, how was vintage this year? COVID-19 must have produced some challenges. Yeah, it did. We were really lucky for a, a couple of reasons. It was a very early vintage. We started picking in February, which is, um, has only happened for us, and or for my experience, for the last 25 years, it, it had only happened once before. So we were well into it, um, into early March, and, and by the time COVID came, came along in lockdown, we only had, uh, we had four days picking to go, and we, we had some very good support from the local contract labour organisations, so we had, had those guys out there, and, and they were able to keep their distance and, and do the right thing, and, and so we were able to, to get those vines harvested. But yeah, 2020 for us, and, and for much of, certainly for all of Hawke's Bay and, and much of New Zealand, was, was a, a stellar season. Um, it was just a combination of the right degree of heat, enough rain, but, but rain at the right time. And so once we came to picking, uh, virtually we, we just had no, no rainy days picking. We were out there every day and we, it was, there were fine days for picking. The fruit was in immaculate condition, very, very low levels of botrytis, which often we get some in there, but this year there was just none. So Larry, because of the early picking, clearly COVID-19 was not too much of an issue. And you mentioned that picking was one of the earliest in 25 years. Why was that? It's a really good question, Angus. We, we, we mull over that ourselves. Um, it's, it's a combination of things. It's, it's the, obviously, the vine does what it wants to do when, when it'll do it, and you, you can't change it. So um, it wasn't so much, uh, wasn't a very early vintage right from bud burst. So bud burst happened about the right time. We got a big burst of heat in November. Uh, it, was, it was much hotter in November than we've ever experienced. And so our, our thinking is that the vine at that time, um, it made... The, the heat came along, the vine started doing what it does, the, the processes within the vine. And so it had already was on a track, even though December came in a little bit cool, by the time we came to vintage and the weather warmed up again, the, the vine was already on a track to, to, be, to start producing its crop early. And so there was really no holding it back then. And, and so that was the big, we think one of the big factors was, was that nice warm November, which was something we, we hadn't experienced for a long time. And so, yeah, that, that was the, the, the main thing that, that really kicked off that early vintage. And you're just starting to get into this. What can a consumer expect in the bottle this year from Tomato? Yeah, 2020, as I say, anything from 2020, you, you'd be confident in buying. Um, definitely from Tomato and, and from from any, any vineyard in Hawke's Bay. It, it, was, it was just such a, such a consistent high quality vintage across the board um, and so we're very very happy and a lot of a lot of our wines from that vintage won't be out for a couple of years certainly the high-end wines so for example the Coleraine and, and the Awatea would probably won't be out until um, March of, of 2022 so got a little while to wait but we were already released Sauvignon Blanc, Gamay Noir um, have, have come out uh, I think Chardonnay's will won't be too far off the mark for the the 2020 Chardonnay so uh, yeah it, the consumer can just buy with confidence anything from 2020. It was just such a good vintage across the board that, um, you know, we're very, very, very happy with uh, the quality. So, um, yeah, without doubt, uh, that's just...
which to, to look out for. So either for early drinking or, or from a cellaring point of view as well. Anything standing out from the winemakers, Larry? Um, yeah, they, they were pretty happy that the whites came in earlier than normal. We, we picked some of them earlier than we normally would, but the flavours were there, so we, we weren't necessarily picking on on uh, sugar levels, but we were picking on flavour, so the flavours developed early. Yeah, it just it's probably too early to pick a real winner out of it because because we just haven't released a lot of those wines yet. But but yeah, it's probably one of those vintages that were, it's it's hard to pick a winner that, that it was all good across the board. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today, Larry. That's okay, Angus. Yeah, pleased to talk about it uh, any time. Just uh, yeah, if you want to know a bit, bit more about what's happening in Hawke's Bay, just uh, yeah, give us a call. Thank you to my guest today, Larry Morgan. He provided a glimpse into Tumata's viticulture processes and I really enjoyed hearing about some of the technology advancements becoming routinely available and applied into their operation. A maritime climate, free draining soil types with natural low fertility, prevailing hot dry northwesterly winds, low rainfall, a long growing season and an annual average of 2,220 sunshine hours make Hawke's Bay one of the warmest areas in New Zealand. The first vines were planted in Hawke's Bay around 1851, with the earliest vineyards being established on the coast and in areas close to the towns of Napier, Havelock North and Hastings. Later development extended to the Heratonga Plains and more recently to the edges of the alluvial plains and extend up the region's river valleys. They are a proud wine producing region and it is now New Zealand's second largest. The bulk of Hawke's Bay's varieties consist of 1,300 hectares of Sauvignon Blanc, 1,080 hectares of Chardonnay, 980 hectares of Merlot, 555 hectares of Pinot Gris, 339 hectares of Syrah, 229 hectares of Pinot Noir. Cabernet Sauvignon consists of 190 hectares and a further 320 hectares of other exotic varieties. This in total makes up just shy of 5,000 producing hectares planted, 76 wineries and 71 independent grape growers. Whilst many of the national wine brands have a presence here, the majority of Hawke's Bay's wineries are family owned and operated. Next time, I talk with another key player of the Hawke's Bay wine industry and I take a look at the sub-regions that make up this diverse landscape. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri, the Viticulture Series.